the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, mass market paperbacks effectively deployed against asteroid bombardment. Who has time to worry about destruction from space when there's so much great reading to do? Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Believe it or not, it has been eight and a half years since the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast began. That's right. Our first show was in March 2013. We've put out a weekly show every Friday. We've serialized many an audiobook since starting with David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Most of all, we've tried our best to bring you great in-depth interviews with great writers and artists that really provide insight into the books you love to read and we love to publish. That was always my goal from the start. After eight years, I will be moving on from hosting and producing the podcast. I leave with a happy feeling in my craw that we have entertained and informed many thousands of Bain readers out there and enhanced their appreciation of the books we all love. The podcast will continue, never fear. David Afsharirad, whom regular listeners already know well, will take over general presentation and producing duties. There will be two or three rotating hosts, and the podcast will certainly be even more entertaining and enlightening. So after this edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast, I'll say goodbye. God bless and happy reading to you all. It's been an honor to be your host. So that said, on the podcast this time, we have part two of a two-part interview with David Weber and Eric Flint discussing To End in Fire, their new entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series. David and Eric will talk about its creation and explain why it is a pivotal novel in the Honor Harrington saga. It's a great book for me to go out on. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Now, here's the news. The October mass market paperbacks have cleared the gate and are throwing turf and taking names down the stretch. First in is Trader's Leak by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Plan Corval saved Leaden civilization from insurrection within, and its reward has been relentless pursuit by enemies. Now the exiled clan leadership has sent Corval master trader Shanyo Scalen to establish new trade routes. Corval's very existence depends on his success. Struggling to recuperate from an attack on his life while managing his daughter Patty's emerging psychic talents, Sean is running out of options and running out of time. Also out in October is Weird World War III Anthology, edited by Sean Patrick Hazlitt. What if the United States had gone to war with the Soviet Union? What if the Cold War had become hot? How would the world have changed, come closer, peer through a glass darkly, and discover the horrifying alternative visions of World War III from some of today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror? 
and in mass market format in October is Cosmic Corsairs by Hang Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Do ye long for adventure in the far reaches, matey? Do ye yearn for space and treasure? Well, come aboard. Your crewmates include Robert Silverberg, Elizabeth Bear, Sarah Monette, Larry Niven, Fritz Leiber, Sarah A. Hoyt, James H. Schmidt, and more. Cosmic Corsairs, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Weird World War III, edited by Sean Patrick Hazlitt. And Traitor's Leap by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller are now available at booksellers everywhere. And hey, when a book appears in mass market format, that means the ebook price goes down as well. So check them out and happy October reading to you. This is part two of a two-part series of David Weber and Eric Flint talking about To End in Fire. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Want to welcome David Weber and Eric Flint back to the podcast. Hey, David and Eric, how you doing? Hi. Um, David Weber is the creator of the Honor Harrington series, if, as if we didn't know. <laughs> Additional Honorverse collaborations include spinoff miniseries Manticore Ascendant, which we're going to have a new one in um, coming up in the spring. Mm-hmm. It's going to be great. Uh, called Insurrection is coming out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's with Timothy Zahn. And with I Eric think- Flint, he's the author of the Crown of Slaves series. We're about to talk about that. He's also the author recently of the time travel novel, the uh, Valkyrie Protocol, and the Gordian, uh, Gordian, what? The Gordian. That's um, the Gordian Protocol the- and the Valkyrie Protocol. Now, there's another, the, the Janus file is uh, has been handed in and accepted and is in the release somewhere. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, last week, actually Friday, uh, Jacob emailed me um, his first pass rough draft on the fourth book um, in that series. Um, so that is going on. That is called the, what is, what are we calling that series? Uh, I don't know. The, the, oh, the I, Gordian series. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. It's called the Gordian something yeah. paradigm or something like yeah. that, but it's yeah. cool. It's got spaceships and time travel in it. Uh, mm-hmm. That's with Jacob Hollow, and uh, most recently, um, Governor, which is the sequel to Path of the Fury, um, was out with uh, written with Richard Fox. Um, that was a June release. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, David has done many other collaborations and series, both fantasy and science fiction, and sometimes both science fiction and fantasy at the same time. Um, Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction. Um, although it's actually science fiction. He, he is the author creator of the Ring of Fire series, starting with first novel, although he's about to, we're about to put out that, that sequel to the uh, 1812. Um, we're going to, Bane is going to start, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is, that's like alternate history straight up, right? That's, yeah, there's no time travel element in that. It's, it's pure alternate history, if you want to call it that. But yeah, I, it's... Uh, Eric, I'd almost re- okay. I can see where interjecting the uptimers into into Ring of Fire makes it science fiction. I I understand that, but I think it's some. It's it is, for want of a better term, artificially induced alternate history. 
but with all of the all of the all the downtimers in there and their their interaction and so forth i think calling it alternate history is exactly correct um sure. why can't it be both no, it can be both. Yeah, yeah. Well, no. Eric swings both ways. It could Eric be can both. answer for himself, of course. But I would say to that that the uh, there is a lot of philosophical issues in the series about the fact that they are actually changing up time, um, and what that will mean, and and talking. And there's a sense of awe and wonder that you you really get from science fiction by that sort of talk and that sort of speculation, and it infects how the characters act because they know what happened to them in the real history. Hmm. It, it's something you don't get in just straight alternate history as much, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you would agree with that, Eric. Yeah, there's a different dynamic. Um, writing the uh, uh, the, uh, the, the the title I call is Trail of Glory series, but it tends to be called the Sam Houston series. Yeah. As Sam Houston's the central figure in it. Um, it's a different dynamic and, and, and here's the tricky part. Um, when you have a, an historical period, which is true of pretty much all of them, that's far enough removed from our own, um, it's dramatically tricky to get modern readers to be able to um, 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 sympathize with um, people with time. Um, and it works in 1632 in that series because it's, it's, it's modern enough. By the time you get to the 17th century, you're in the modern era. I mean, it's early modern era, but, but you know, it's not. But like if you were doing one um, which I've done in, in fact, I'm doing one with uh, Gorgon Paula, which Bane has published first two books of it. This is spent two, two years after the death of Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. And at the very first or second chapter in the book, the uptime, uh, she's retired, historian says to the people, says, you have to understand these people are not civilized. Yeah. And, and, and somebody says, but, but Aristotle, yeah, I, she, she said, I know, I know all that. They are not civilized, okay? Yeah. They really, they do not think the way you do. <laughs> they really, really don't. And, but you have uptimers that are providing them with a, an alternate view of things. And that, mm. it, that makes it much easier to work with. But working in the Sam Houston series, which is set in the Jacksonian era, the reason I picked Sam Houston um, was partly he was genuinely a nice guy. Um, and secondly, he, I needed a Southerner for the thing to work. And he was either for either a Southerner or Northerner, had the closest to what a modern concept of race would be um, than anybody of the time so he, he it's possible to work with him and the other main character i worked with was a uh, uh, an irish radical one of the men of 98 who you know had come over so he had his own ways but it's it's tricky mm -hmm. and um especially because i'm walking in a minefield in that one because yeah. you're dealing with with relations with indians with with yeah, africans yeah. especially and these days yeah. is, there's a whole lot of mythology that works in a lot of different ways. And yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, the, the ultimate source of all evil is a four, four-word sentence, my shit don't stink. Yeah. Uh, and the problem is, no, everybody's does. And that includes the people. One of the things you've got to be careful not to do is to infantilize Indians. Uh-huh. Um, because, yes, they were often victimized, but they were not victims. It's yeah. not the same thing. Yeah. Um, so it's that whole question of agency versus lack yeah. of agency. Yeah, and, you, and know, you, you can have agency and fail, but that's not the same as not having agency. Yeah, the way I put it to people, the shorthand way I put it is, uh, how many of the Cherokee slaves died on the Trail of Tears? Uh, because all the Southern tribes are slave-owning tribes, they all have plantations, and they made their slaves go with them. And nobody knows because they didn't keep track of it. Um, And that's part of it is that, yes, they they were definitely victimized. No question about it. I mean, the Trail of Tears was just horrendous. Um, But real history is not, you know, a comic book with with guys and bad guys and, you know, and and it's real simple and no it's not it's a lot more complicated the, the apaches american indian neighbors were not a whole lot fonder of oh, the no, apaches no, than anybody else no, no, everybody hated the comanches yeah. i mean everybody did and yeah. and it's not hard to understand why you know but well, I, uh, I point it, i point out to people that you know when uh when the aztec empire fell okay there were what 300 spaniards total involved okay the only reason the Aztecs fell is because their neighbors and their subject people hated them, you know, and they saw an opportunity to take them down. That's the problem is that it requires a historian's perspective to look at that. And I think most people think in terms of, you know, I've got this snapshot of history. I don't have a a multi-frame movie of history. I've just got this little snapshot and that's the way it was because that's the way it is in, in my, my perception. And it's hard to get past that even when you're consciously trying to sometimes. I remember, uh, you remember the original John Wayne uh, uh, True Grit movie? Yeah. Okay. I had an awful time for the first 15 minutes of that movie. I thought this is the most worst written movie I've ever seen in my ever. And then I realized the screenwriters had actually written it in period dialogue. <laughs> oh, that's always a mistake. Okay. No, no. Once you got past that first 10, 15 minutes of going like, I don't know about well, this. Well, that was from I'm... the Charles Portis novel as well. So, yeah. Yeah. But that that's where you all of a sudden, I mean, it just clicked. And, and in a way, that was part of what was moving you back to the time when this when this movie is is taking place. Okay, and it's why the second True Grip movie. It's one of the reasons there's such a difference between them. It's just not just the actors. It's not just the director. It's the fact that the second script didn't try to to get that period dialogue. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, it was a, a historical novelist. Um, I don't think uh, I don't think it was Frank Irby, but anyway, um, he said that as a historical novelist, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, do you want to be true to the historical period, uh, 
or do you want to write it in a way that your readership will have access to? Yeah. Okay. Because if you wrote in uh, early 19th century idiom, okay, with a young man seeking the, 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 the girl's hand in marriage from her father, okay, if you looked at it, you know, a, a 21st century reader, you're like, you have got to be shitting me. <laughs> okay. But that's what he really would have said. Um, anyway, this has, we're really, really just yeah. pounding <laughs> anyway, away at dead, dead fire here, aren't we? <laughs> it should have been, uh, by the way, I think Murtry said that. Um, all right. So David has also contributed to Eric's series, mainline series, uh, as in the novel 1633 and 1634, The Baltic War. Um, as and so you guys have played in each other's universe for a long time and uh, are you saying Al we're old yeah isn't that a suave way of saying things? So, um, i didn't think so i caught no, you <laughs> anyway uh and they've done it again and out now at booksellers everywhere is the ebook of to end in fire and the 3d uh printer version of the ebook um to end in fire which is the uh which is the honor verse the honor harrington series the crown of slave saga is what we have on the cover here uh, so right now um at the beginning of the book uh michelle hinky is uh admiral gold peak um is really in charge and she's she's maintaining things while the provisional government is installed and uh and this is also where our characters um start coming in from previous books like anton Zawolwicki mm -hmm. and victor chakot who are our main characters in the in the series um so far and we start seeing other people um and in fact honor is in this book yes. <laughs> so uh it, because Thrown in with all this, uh, with all this planetary nation building, is the fact that um, that inner core did escape, and we—that is Manticore—starts to find out what the heck because they're uh, because of things that Victor and Anton are doing, start to find out where the hell they might have gone. Well, um, let, let's let's go back for a minute where you were talking about blowing up the planet. Okay, okay we got sidetracked here. I was talking about yes. Operation Houdini. Okay, when the inner core of the malign alignment realized that the Grand Alliance was coming, they activated their plans to evacuate their core leadership. Well, okay, the portion of their core leadership that was on Mesa, and the poor innocent reader was left to assume at that point that that was basically all the core leadership of the inner onion what can i say i don't know why people think we're devious but anyway uh they decided that they were going to pull them out and they're pulling out as many as they can they're trying to move them out in tranches uh, in in stages that won't be easy to trace etc cetera, etc cetera. and they are using terrorist events to cover the with the disappearance of people explosions that kill a bunch of people and in the middle of the people who got killed three or four people the alignment is sneaking off the planet disappear okay and nobody looks for them anymore because they were killed in the explosion or the i, I especially like the the passenger liner that eric sank you know that was like hey yeah we kill everybody on this one yeah. but 
Anyway, they run out of time. They haven't got everybody off. So they go to their ultimate fallback position, which is they kill everybody on the planet who they think knows anything about the inner alignment and a series of explosions, which uh, nuclear explosions that they try to make look like a bombardment by Michelle Hinckley's 10th fleet to blacken the Grand, Align, uh, the Grand Alliance in Solarian eyes. Now, anybody who actually looks at what happened here will realize that, you know, no, this was not an orbital bombardment, whatever else it was. But they don't blow up the entire planet. They do kill several million people. And one of the things that, um, and I, this was um, when Eric, Eric, when you sent uh, Anton to talk to, to Ariane, one of the points that Anton has figured out is that because what they're now calling the malign alignment was hiding within the benign alignment and recruiting from it, the benign alignment proportionately lost a lot more people to these explosions than the general population did because they were killing family members who might have wondered where somebody had gone or, or whatever. And this is a factor in the benign alignment's readiness to work with um, our heroes later on. Guys, I have to scoot for just a minute. I will be right back. So Eric, what is the, um, tell us about these two characters. Can you remind us who they are and how they're differentiated and uh, whether, how, they're, how they work together? Which character? Um, Anton and Victor. Oh, they go back a long way. They go back to the um, very first story I wrote uh, for uh, the Honor Harrington Universe, which is a short novel called From the Highlands, which appears in one of the anthologies David did. And what happens there is Anton Zilwicky is a officer in the Manticore Navy, uh, and uh, his daughter gets kidnapped. And um, you, don't, huh? you don't realize why at the beginning, actually the story starts with her trying to escape. Um, and the other thing that happens is another character who's a very young um, state sec agent, uh, a Havenite who just got out of the academy. Uh, and he's a very, very dedicated, um, you know, state sec agent but he's starting to see things that are really bothering him and he winds up uh, asking uh, a character named uh, uh, Usher who figures in an earlier novel of David's which I don't remember which one but you you know Usher goes Part victorious war yeah yeah and Usher's the leader uh, of the opposition in there is a, a an underground opposition in Haven and what basically happens is there's a part of the storyline where Anton is trying to find his daughter. In the course of it, he winds up meeting Catherine Montaigne, whom he's expecting to dislike, and then they actually wind up falling in love. And Victor is getting angrier and angrier when he realizes what's, you know, what has happened to the revolution. And it kind of culminates Haven, so, with uh, yeah. a, a, a shootout 
under the uh, I actually set this in, in <laughs> I live in Chicago so I set it in Chicago um, in the the, 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 the the what are now subterranean ruins of the Art Institute um, and uh, it's in a very uh, not very uh, Helen uh, Anton's daughter does make her escape and then she encounters two youngsters underneath in these labyrinths underneath and then it finally comes to a head when when uh, the bad guys are trying to track down the, the girls and Victor's with them and he suddenly with the bad guys because he's, bad guys. he's sort of embedded in them. yeah and he suddenly starts killing them yeah and um he would not have survived except that Jeremy X, the head of the bottom of ballroom, comes charging in and intervenes and shoots them. Jeremy is an old friend of Kathy Montaigne's. Yeah, right. She's yeah. A, they're old friends, right? Yeah. Well, so that's where all those characters originated. And the thing that came out of that is you have a, a manicorn officer over here. And you got a Havenite state sec agent over here, but the agent's the one who saved the guy's daughter because he felt that what was being done to her was a betrayal of the ideals of the revolution that he was devoted to. Victor, Victor was a genuine son of the revolution. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so he had zero patience with the, for want of a better term, the Stalinists uh who who took the revolution and and perverted it into something else um that is the so just because the universe is enormous um so uh anton is manticore officer mm -hmm. victor was uh was was a kgb agent uh, a, a espionage agent of haven who was the enemy of Manticore I think of him a little bit as more NKVD than KGB. Well, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, specifically, yeah. what I modeled yeah. him after was uh, a member of the Cheka, uh, which was the special commission to uh, combat counter-revolution that was set up by the Bolsheviks during the Civil War. Yeah. So yeah, the Czech Haven was is sort of like the French Revolution gone bad, but not quite. Because no, Haven no, is sort of like not, I want you to think it's the French Revolution gone bad, yes. but it's something else entirely. <laughs> it, it's it's the it's the three card Monte of David setting it up to look like that. Yes, we've we've <laughs> had that discussion. Once had a a very pleasant hour at least, maybe two hour argument over the plausibility of Haven, because Haven is basically a warmongering welfare state is kind of what it is. Mm. And, and I said to David, I find that kind of hard because there's never been one in history. And, and David said, yeah, but you can't prove it couldn't happen, which was true. Um, and anyway, no, it's, it's uh, David really played games with people with, with Haven. I mean, people, all these people think they know what it is. And, uh, but Eric, don't forget, Haven is not only a warmongering Haven uh, welfare state, it's also a warmongering oligarchy. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. Okay. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, and, um, um, let, let me let, let me now they're one. part of the Grand Alliance, right? Yeah. I mean, let, 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 me, yeah. let me throw one thing out here. A lot yeah. of people, when they started reading about how I had structured Haven, uh, thought that I was saying this was where inevitably any social support net had to wind up as this corrupt system with everybody being dependent and everything else. I think that dependency is something you have to worry about anytime that there is uh, an in-depth 
social support welfare system. But what you become aware of as I start unpacking things is that this is actually the result of a corrupt bargain between the people who controlled the votes of what become the dullest class and the oligarchy, which wants to retain power and so forth, in which they basically barter bread and circuses that are then patronage handed out by the by the uh, the dullest dullest managers, and so it's a situation in which the basic foundation of the process is corrupt at its core because of the way that it's set up, and that eventually poisons the entire the entire fruit. It's it's a lot closer to the Roman Empire than to in a lot of in a lot of ways it is uh, the senatorial class which had enormous plantations and so forth, and then you know there was the mob in Rome and it was like you know bread and circuses um, yeah yeah um, but it's uh, it, and like it, I say I deliberately okay. Yeah, I know, tennis court oath, the whole nine yards, Robespierre. Uh, yeah, you know, it's like, well, yes. yeah, that's part of it is that watch this hand. Don't yeah, pay any no, attention to this one. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. When you named him Rob Pierre and <laughs> yeah. like, Robert Stanton Pierre, so that his full yeah, signature yeah. is Rob S. Pierre. <laughs> um, and, and there's a, a wannabe. Napoleon equivalent in Esther uh, McQueen. McQueen, yes. Uh, she doesn't make it. Um, you, you would not believe the number of letters I got when she got blown up. Okay. And they're like, wait, That's you just funny. killed Napoleon. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> well, that didn't happen. Well, I mean, Manticore had to win. But well, the, didn't have to, but we wouldn't be where we are if they didn't. So, Well, Victor is... Um, is as as he's described in this book in to end in fire is as a true believer in in a, a real guy that's got morals of the revolution and um and he and 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 since haven betrayed the revolution he was like done with haven no no yeah. no he was never so, done with haven no he was done with anyway explain they explain uh, somebody describes um Victor's character in this book, I think, very effectively. Um, one of the characters describes it. Um, Where? <laughs> which passage are you thinking about? I'm of the one. Somebody says, "What's he like?" And then somebody. Well, okay, Victor. Um, oh, you're probably thinking about. Um, it's near the start where I could find it, but basically, yeah. they're like, he's you can't you, you can only understand him by understanding that he's a man of principle yeah man of what principle yeah i would say i would almost say convictions almost more than principle although yeah. they they feed yeah, into yeah. each other convictions is better yeah let's uh, put it this way victor was a son of the revolution because he believed in what the revolution was supposed to be providing to people it wasn't because he was in love with being a revolutionary. It was because he believed in creating a system in which human dignity and 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 you know human human rights were were recognized. Okay, so when Eloise Pritchard and Thomas Theisman restored the old constitution, 
okay, a system in which you have accountable government, in which you have all the rest of this. He gave his full loyalty to that new government. Okay, he's definitely about the farthest thing from done with Haven that you could possibly get. Yeah, yeah. But at this, but at the same time, people like Eloise Pritchard and Tom Theismann have to keep in the back of their minds that he's not loyal to them because they restored the old constitution. He's loyal to them because they are living up to what he demands of his star nation. And yeah. if they stop doing that. <laughs> yeah, now the way we put it in one passage was that uh, Victor's um, uh, loyalty to Haven is absolute, but it's not tribal. Um, you that know, was what I was it, thinking about. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, he is very loyal, but but if the government screws up, um, uh, it, you know, all bets are off. And yeah. it's kind of ironic that makes people trust him more because it's kind of like they sort of know where he's at and where he's coming from. The other thing about Victor, which makes him kind of a fun character to work with, is he's an unbelievable hard ass. Uh, and, and, and and that shows up in a number of, of scenes going all the way back to Fanatic um, and Crown of Slaves. Um, he has his own way of interrogating people, which does not involve torture. It's just simply... Uh, helicopters would be an interesting part yeah, of his interrogation well, technique. You either tell me what I want to know, <laughs> or you know, you're uh, and then he'll shoot somebody and prove he's perfectly willing to do it. Um, I, I tell you the truth, when I first produced him, I thought, I didn't know if people were going to like him at all, but yeah. he's become actually quite a popular. Well, Victor, Victor is almost, this is going to sound odd, okay, but I think of him in some ways as a principled sociopath. Close. Okay. What he does is governed by iron principles that he will not compromise. Mm -hmm. But in pursuit of those principles, he's willing to do anything he has to do, however horrible, mm -hmm. however bloody, in order to accomplish, to yeah. remain true to those principles. He doesn't like killing people, but it also doesn't bother him very much. That's, that's kind of funny because I was about to say, you know, there's a lot of Eric in him, don't you think? The, what they like to kill in, people in i don't know <laughs> no before you said that i was about to say there's a lot of eric in there <laughs> anyway i don't know no. um so an anton is sort of he's he's like this he's a he's the noble man who works his ass off kind of character right um he's a well when you when you say noble man do you mean a noble person or an aristocrat because he's about the farthest thing you get from an aristocrat well, he's a he's an officer at, He's a guy that works his butt off. And He's a Griffin is, Highlander, okay? Yeah, they right, are Explain as, him. Griffin yeah. Highlanders are as close to anarchists as the Star okay. Kingdom produces, okay? Right. They are proud of their commoner. They are fiercely loyal to the crown. Yes. and see themselves as fundamentally opposed to the aristocracy. Okay, he's a monarchist who works his butt off and has a democratic streak. Um, yeah, well, yeah, well, okay. The Star Kingdom of Manticore overall has a lot deeper representative traditions than some people some people realize um it and it, it always has had um but 
yeah, Victor is, Eric took a character that I had created for one scene in the short Victorious War. And no, transposed... that was Anton, not Victor. Beg your pardon? That was Anton, not Victor. I, I'm sorry, I thought, I, I meant to say Anton. Anton's yeah. who I'm talking about. Okay. Right. Um, and, and transposed him into Fanatic. Okay. And all that we really knew about him at the time was how much he loved his wife. Uh, who died pretty much in front of him, protecting the convoy that he and their daughter were on, um, and his and his relationship with his daughter, um, and Eric took that and expanded it enormously in in fanatic, uh, and along the way Anton morphed into uh, an intelligence specialist, okay, which he was not before fanatic. He kind of grew into that, uh, partly because of the shenanigans he got into on Old Earth and in Old Chicago, trying to get Helen back. Okay, but another big part of it is that he's a monarchist. He's an intelligence officer, and he is one hundred percent a supporter of the Audubon Ballroom. Um, and everybody knows that technically the Audubon Ballroom is still a prescribed terrorist organization. And everybody in Manticore and government knows that Kathy and Anton have, <laughs> have Audubon Ballroom strikers over for dinner every other Wednesday. <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, Anton is, um, he's a very, very good analyst. And he thinks outside the box. And he's also very, 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 very good with cybernetics. And what you get is, and it's kind of interesting because Anton is the guy with the, the physique from hell, okay? Like an Olympic wrestler, you know, and he's like the, the dwarven king almost because of, you know, he's like this fire plug of the guy who's not really all that short. You just think he is because of how broad he is uh, kind of thing. And he holds his own, you know, if it comes to fisticuffs or pulsar darts or whatever. But basically, when that happens, he holds he holds Victor's he he, he holds Victor's coat. <laughs> you know, he says, "Go, go, go!" You know, kind of thing. They're an interesting uh, duo. I have a very close relationship, and uh, there's a scene in um, it's in Cauldron of Ghosts toward the end where 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 Anton has to leave, and they think that may well be the last time they ever see each other because at least one of them is going to be dead. And uh, you know, I think there's a pretty touching scene where they sort of say go goodbye to each other. Um, but is, it, uh, is they, it in is it in Cauldron or in uh, End in Fire, where somebody what? finally says it's okay to admit you love each other? Ah. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember. It's, yeah, it, yeah. It's uh, I don't remember. I yeah. don't remember. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's in one of them. Yeah, it's in one of them. I, yeah. I we've worked a lot with those two characters. Yeah. So uh, it's Anton and his uh, he, he just it, relentlessly analyzing what's going. He, he's figuring it out. He's piecing together what the the in the the malign alignment has done well he's one person um, he's one person yeah, but he's in. he's got a little he's got a crew um, well okay in terms of figuring out what happened with operation houdini 
Okay, Anton and um, Damian Harahop and Indiana Graham um, and uh, uh, Firewatch um, Harahop's tree cat uh, are the primary investigators who are turning up the evidence that is unraveling what happened in Houdini. And from there, Anton is able to extrapolate to the relationship between the malign alignment and the benign alignment. Mm -hmm. Eric? Because you wrote the, the and, and then there's separately um, the characters that David introduced in uh, in, in in other books, the, 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 <laughs> you know, the, the ghost hunters, uh, and they figure pretty prominently in this book. And then there's a new character, um, whom since he's a I will not mention the name, but um, who uh, figures out. You uh, through a different logical method, um, pretty much the same thing as to how the Houdini worked and, and what it was done. And the thing about it is how utterly ruthless it was. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they literally did kill millions of people just to cover their tracks. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of the people they killed were their own people yeah. or families of their own people. Um, they're really monstrous, the Detweilers. They really are. Well, the Detweilers, the Detweilers are an example of someone whose moral governor has just been removed from the circuit. Yeah. Um, they are totally 100% committed to their goal, which is from where they sit, a noble goal. Okay. But they're like, they're like, they're like Victor without a moral governor in that all they think about, okay, they would have preferred to get all these people off and not kill family members and everything else. Right, they right. really would have. Okay. That was their number one thing, but they unhesitatingly pull the trigger because that's what's necessary to sustain their, their, their great crusade. Okay. And one of the people that I think Eric was talking about here is somebody who is a supporter of the alignment, a supporter of the malign alignment, but who isn't part of the inner core of the malign alignment. It doesn't spend any time with the Detweilers, doesn't get a chance, doesn't have a full brief on everywhere we're going here. And she finds herself having to confront, wait, could the people that I have given my allegiance to, that I've given my life to, how could they do this? Okay, I accept that. I, Eric made a really good uh, analogy uh, in her early thinking. You know, she's thinking in terms of during the Second World War, okay, when to defeat Nazism, we resorted to mass bombing and the first nuclear strikes and everything else. So, you know, any great cause you have to be ruthless enough to not betray the cause, okay, to bring it about. And she sees this as the greatest goal that you can give yourself to as a believer in humanity's future is to, is to bring all of these advantages to the human genotype. And now she's face to face. And the problem is she's figured out pretty much why they did it, okay? 
but she can't convince herself that that degree of ruthlessness, that degree, you know, how do I live with the fact mm -hmm. that they did that? And this becomes uh, a factor um, later, later in the book. But one of the things that Eric and I have both been doing uh, with this from the get-go is one of the things I think that we both explore in our characters a lot is redemption. Okay? When you realize what you've truly done or what you're truly part of, how do you respond? Okay? And a Jack McBride responds by getting his friend Hiram out at the expense of his own life because he realizes that what he's given his allegiance to is not what he thought he'd given his allegiance to. Okay. Um, and we see that in quite a few characters um, in this book, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So let's bring, all right. So um, these guys have uh, the ultimate goal that the, the, the malign guys have is they want to remake the human race across all of the stars that we've settled into a genetically engineered monstrosity um I'm no, right gene genetically engineered perfection yes perfect <laughs> all right so they're bad <laughs> and um and and they all right so we get the explanation although we've we've known sort of what happened for several books um, what was the big mysterious strike called again? Uh, the Iwata strike? Yes. That, yes. Um, and Honor is not, was not happy about that. Oh, I don't blame her. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but she's been waiting quite a while to get her ultimate uh, revenge about that. What was that? And um, The Iwata and, strike? And we get an, yes. And we get an idea of, because nobody's known exactly where it came from. Well, they've ever since they found out the Mason alignment exists, the Grand Alliance has been positive who was behind it. The problem is yeah. that when they got to Mesa, they found a Mason alignment. They said, well, you don't know nothing about that. And, and they got tree cats saying, yeah, they're all telling the truth. They don't know anything about it. They didn't have yeah. anything to do with it. We're going like, oh, and shit. Now where the hell did those ships come from? Yeah. And, yeah. And they um, were built here. So Yeah. Basically what happened. And I'm just going to go ahead, and this is a, a long-term spoiler for the series, but I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out here. The creation of the People's Republic of Haven was a project of the Mason Alignment. And the reason it was a project of the Mason Alignment is that the two power centers they most feared as a opposition to their grand plan were the Solarian League, and Haven, the Republic of Haven. The Republic of Haven was regarded as sort of the Athens of, of the, the outworlds. It was the biggest single star nation outside the Solarian League. It had all these ideals. Everybody wanted to be part of it. And like the Star Kingdom of Manticore, which was wealthy but much smaller, uh, the Republic of Haven was fervently opposed to genetic slavery, was part of the Cherwell Convention, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the plan was to take the Mason alignment out to deprive it of its role as a moral leader to oppose the, the Detweiler plan when it finally kind of sort of went public. 
Well, unfortunately, <laughs> then they were going to use the Mesa, they were going to use Haven to eliminate Manticore. And unfortunately for them, Manticore didn't die. Okay. And the military hardware, which had been in sort of this uh, stasis for a long time, because the Solarian League had the biggest navy in the world, nobody was going to mess with them, you know, et cetera, et cetera, just took off in the, in the Haven sector with this war going on. And they realized, you know what? Manticore is going to kick Haven's butt. And then this one little star system and its allies are going to be able to tell the entire Solarian League to pound sand because of the difference in their warfighting capability. So what they did was they uh, did a sneak attack on uh, Manticore uh, at Grayson uh, to take out their, their industrial, the industrial base supporting their naval forces. And they hoped that Haven would finish them off given the opportunity to do so. And it's called the Iwata strike in Manticore. It's called the Uriel strike or the Blackbird strike in Grayson. In Manticore, it's called the Iwata strike because deorbiting wreckage sparked a tsunami that took out one of the major cities on Sphinx, the Iwata crossing, and also killed about 90% or more of Honor Harrington's family on Sphinx because they all lived in and around that part of, of Sphinx. So yes, Honor has blood in her eye where any of this is concerned. Now, unfortunately for the uh, alignment, uh, their plans, Eric introduced Anton and Victor to Jack McBride <laughs> back on Mesa. And Victor came home with Hiram and Anton and told Eloise Pritchard the truth about the alignment, okay? And at that point, Pritchard, instead of pressing her advantage to try and take Manticore out, essentially offered Manticore alignment, uh, 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 alliance against their true enemies. Okay, so that's how we get to where we are with what we're calling the Grand Alliance mm -hmm. uh, and, and everything. Um, and the galaxy as a whole doesn't believe in the alignment it's the kind of thing a really bad novelist would come up with as a as a you know a, a sinister threat to to put barry in the background um and eric mentioned the ghost hunters they are solarian intelligence types uh who have been saying you know maybe we should start by assuming the manticorans aren't all crazy okay and so they've been looking for what they call the other guys. They're not sure they believe in this whole Mason alignment thing, but somebody's out there doing shit, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, Eric, when you get them to, um, to Mesa, they're pretty integral to, to, I think, would it be fair to say that Anton had already done the heavy lifting on figuring out what the alignment was? And they basically sign on, or do you, how do you? Well, I think they were, let's put it this way. They were, um, they basically figured out what Anton did, but they still had it as an algebraic formulation. And it was Anton who put the arithmetic in. Um, and they, well, 
don't in the beginning sign off on Anton's version, but as time goes on, it becomes more and more kind of, this really makes sense. I mean, it all holds together. It really makes sense. And, and you know, by the end of the book, certainly um, everybody's kind of signed on to the same. The mm -hmm. same. And it, it's not just that they're saying this makes sense it's that nothing else does yeah. make sense yeah yeah yeah. yeah yeah that's a better way of putting it um so, i mean we find out pretty early from because we switch points of view um <laughs> pretty early in the book that um the malign alignment has retreated to uh this planet called el dorado this is not a, a, a this is not really a spoiler because it's you know it's about okay. here <laughs> that we find well, it's so. also been established in earlier books yeah and galton is the system and uh this is where this is where they've been making all their stuff right and okay well a, we can't a, really go too deeply into that yeah, because there's okay. a major plot element involved yeah. here but i would say yes we can absolutely say that this is the the alignment's primary command and control node in terms of coordinating all of its operations everywhere off mesa okay um mesa has now been denied to them yes but but with the way that it was operating before 10th fleet arrived okay is you had the very upper echelon the top tier of the malign alignment's internal leadership was on Mesa and was communicating through this other star system with all of its various arms and tentacles, unless there was a time critical thing, in which case they would communicate directly from Mesa. But yeah, that's, and this is their primary industrial node and, and everything else. But this is for those who have been reading the books all along, this is their bolt hole kind of on steroids. Um, and when I say on steroids, because they shipped in genetic slaves to be the original labor force rather than finding an inhabited planet to build around. Uh, so they built this place from the ground up, whereas Bolthold was we found this lost colony and appropriated it. Okay. And so we, if, um, our, our 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 heroes can get to them um they can honor can come in and do her thing oh yeah <laughs> let's put it that way and there is a spaceship battle that happens in here which is about that much of the <laughs> so anyway we won't say exactly what happens but it could be that that honor um honor gets her opportunity what is uh where is honor and and how does she come in uh how, how does we first get her um, you mean all the way back at this in, point in the story oh, where is okay honor? uh at this point in the story honor is on grayson the start of the book yeah the start of the book she's left for grayson she's told elizabeth at the end of uncompromising honor i'm done i've given you like 60 years of my life on active duty you know and i'm tired and also of course she's lost uh, emily um her 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 co-wife with uh with uh whitehaven um and she has just had uh emily's uh fertilized embryo implanted 
and she's going to go to grace and she's going to bear this child to term. She didn't get to do that with her son, Raul, because of the, the what was demanded of her duty wise. Uh, so that's where she is when this begins. Um, and um, that's where she stays until after uh, her, her and Emily's son uh, is born. And she names him for, um, let's see, Andrew and uh, Jared Yanikoff. I can't remember uh, all of the, the names off the top of my head. But anyway, then she gets called back to Manticore by Elizabeth. And she's very suspicious. Elizabeth is the queen of Manticore. And, and the emperor, the empress of empress Manticore now. these days. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, so here we are at the shuttle pad. And it's like, all right, Elizabeth, what are you after? <laughs> and the empress of Manticore is like, that's not the way people are supposed to talk to the emperor. Yeah, yeah, I know. What are you after? You know, kind of thing. And that's the point at which Elizabeth tells her that we think we may have figured out or be in the process of figuring out where the Mason Alignment secret headquarters are. And we're going to be putting together a fleet to go calling on it. And I just thought I'd consult with you and see if you could think of anybody who might, you know, want to be commanded the fleet. <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem was, that I'd left Honor pregnant at the end of the first book, uh, not the end book, the first, uh, of, at the end of Uncompromising Honor. There is no way in hell that Eric and I could have let the, 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 the secret Mason headquarters planet be taken down by anybody besides Honor Harrington. People would have been waiting for us in alleys with baseball bats, you know, kind of thing. So one of the problems that we had was that we had to, and, and it worked because we also have people traveling all over the galaxy and it takes time to get between star systems, even with, you know, hyperdrives and everything else. But there had to be time for Honor to be pregnant and deliver the child and then be available again to command the fleet, okay? And so that was really one of the primary determinants and how long this book was going to run, not count, not page count wise, but chronologically, how long it was going to have to run. So um, this, the, the interesting thing about Honor in here is that, that, is that she, there's always these two sides of her. There's domestic Honor, and then there's um, avenging uh, death goddess Honor. Um, and, and we see, we have a moment where she peels away her domestic side uh, and it's in, in the inner, you know, that honor, the other honor comes out. Mm. Um, it's a wonderful transformation in the book and it's well worth the, just getting the book for that. I think. So. Well, I think, I think of it as her salamander side and, right, yeah. and her, this is who I am side. And it's, you know, honor has said, you know, several times that, under the wrong circumstances, she would have been a monster. Um, and what she's done is she's a lot like Victor mm -hmm. in some ways, despite the fact that they are very different. Okay. But she's like, you do not want to come between her and her core principles. And you do not want to come between her and the people she cares about. Okay. Because she will deal with you one way or the other if you do that um 
when I wrote um, Beauty and the Beast in the last anthology, what I also think of as the courtship of Honor's father, uh, where um, we meet Alfred Harrington is this great big guy. You know, he's the gentle teddy bear. He's the the the, the tree whose branches she grew up under, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if you go back and read Beauty and the Beast, you find out that he's probably the only person on the entire planet of Sphinx who's better at killing people than honor. Okay. And he was so scared of what he discovered that he was capable of that he transferred from the Marines as a combat arm to the Navy as a doctor. Okay, but this is who raised Honor Harrington. And it's not, and, and I've always known this is part of the character, but there was never a place to really deal with it in the books, which is why I did it in the, in the anthology. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that Honor not only is this, this, this killer angel side of her very much a part of her, but that's also that and her mother as well are where she gets the moral governor that keeps her from being a monster. Okay. Um, it's, uh, I've had a lot of fun with the character and I've had some really serious moments uh, with the character too. Um, because I think Eric, I think you'd agree with me here. Most of us who write these stories write them because we're dealing with themes that are important to us. Because what? Because we're dealing with themes that are important to us. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And people like honor. You know, God help us, they really do exist. Um, And, you know, she's probably a bit on steroids compared to the folks you're going to meet. But I've known people who are very much like Honor Harrington, okay? The, the, it's, I can't remember who it was, like the founder of the Texas Rangers who said, you can't stop a man who knows he's in the right and keeps coming, okay? Well, you know, I think there's truth to that. You can, the only way you can stop somebody like that is to kill them, okay? And that's the only way you'd stop Victor Kasha or Honor Harrington if, if this was, you know, core principle time for them um i think probably that honor is haunted by some of the things she's done more than victor is because i think victor is able to and i don't know what the right word is eric my okay victor is really basically your character you invented him and and you're he's he's you've crafted his viewpoint Mm -hmm. okay But it seems to me that Victor is unburdened by the blood on his hands because he's convinced that he never shed any of it that didn't need to be shed as part of his commitment to this greater set of goals. Yeah. Would you say that that's fair? Because I, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it is. It's, um, um, I don't know how to put it, but um, it's not that he's oblivious to it, but I mean, he's, you know, it's, yeah, it, it's um, other people will, will remember somebody that they, um, I, for instance, there's never any indication 
in, in the character of Saburo, one of the things Saburo does when he when he you know, when he interviews and, and uh, employs uh, uh, a woman who was part of the Misties, um, who was a character in *Calling yeah, the Ghosts*. Yeah, and and he asks her uh, while you're still having a flashback because he knows she's having PTSD. And and she says, well, how do you know about that? And he said, I can look at those records. Um, and he said, and he does too. Mm-hmm. And he describes the memory that really triggered it off. And it was something that happened during one of his assassination attempts. Uh, well, not attempts, he succeeded. But yeah. uh, what happened was after he killed the guy, it was the guy's five-year-old daughter is standing right there. Um, I can't imagine Victor getting PTSD. I think what would happen, I, I could imagine, I could, I could imagine him getting PTSD. I could imagine him locking it down so much that however yeah. much pain it might be causing him, he's not going to allow it to affect him in any yeah. way. Yeah. But I think if the day ever came that he realized that he'd killed the wrong person okay that that he had violated his own his own code and he has one uh i think it come pretty close to destroying him i don't think so um but it would certainly upset him Um, i think i think it i think it might destroy him as the victor kasha we know that's possible that's possible uh one of the things well, I, I can't get into this because we'll be getting into spoilers, but um, I can't really talk about his future. But um, yeah, that's possible. That's possible. Um, well, maybe uh, that is a good place to leave it. Um, what else about what else about the book have I not anything central to the book that I haven't asked about? Um, I will just say this for all the. It really was the hardest book that um, um, David and I have written. Actually, probably the hardest book I've written, period. Um, um, they really did pose a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. But it's a hell of a good book. I'll tell you that. Um, it really I, is. I uh, think so. And anybody who who is following that series, I, I think will will enjoy this book. Um, um, and I can say that without, you know, I'm not, I'm really not hyping it. I just think it, it really, we spent months on it. It, mm-hmm. uh, it, uh, spent- I, th- I think, I think anybody who's invested in honor and anybody who's invested in the, in the crown of slaves character set. Okay. The way that they come together in this book. I think is it to me as a writer, it's really, really satisfying. And I think it will be for the reader as well. Now, you know, I had incorporated elements of the crown of slaves, for example, in, um, in uncompromising honor. One of the things that's going on is Anton having, Eric was talking about him having to say goodbye to, to, Tandi and Vic and Victor and Lara, um, because he needs to get out with the information that Manticore has to have, and they don't think they're going to, you know. And so he is with honor in Manticore 
and they don't know that Michelle Hinkey is moving to Mesa yeah. or or when or whatnot. And he's the 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 pain that he's feeling in that book over his 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 concern for his friends. And one of the most satisfying scenes for me in Uncompromising Honor was when Honor is able to call him in and say they got there in time. Okay. This book does even more, maybe I would say a lot more of cross-weaving like that between the two, you know, and it works it was really an easy fit for me because like I say, in my mind, I don't really differentiate between the various secondary series and, and whatnot. Um, so for me, it's not that big a, big a reach to be combining them, but I think readers are going to be, I think pleasantly uh, um, surprised, pleased with the extent to which the two storylines are, are integrated here, even though we don't see, because we're skipping around uh, from planet to planet, event to event. Um, I think there's probably only before she finally goes back to Manticore to take command of the fleet, there's probably not more than half a dozen scenes with honor in the entire book. But I think that where they're placed and how they work fits very well into the ongoing um, yeah. narrative. Yeah. Well, it is um, it is a big book, both literally and physically, in the Honorverse series, and it's a big uh, culmination of this Mason alignment. Uh, not culmination, but climax, climactic moment in this great yes. story that you've been following. Yes. It's not the culmination. But but it and it is the next book in the story of what is happening. Yep. Um, well, and one thing one thing that I do want to throw in, and probably all probably already mentioned this, without getting into spoilers. Okay, one of the things that you're going to find out in the course of this book is that what you thought you knew about the Mason alignment was just like what you knew about the French Revolution on Haven. <laughs> <laughs> Many mysteries, yes. <laughs> uh, many revelations await you. Uh, yes. And the book is uh, To End in Fire by David Weber and Eric Flint. David and Eric, thank you so much for talking with us about To End in Fire. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That was part two of a two-part interview with David Weber and Eric Flint talking about To End in Fire. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Will the people of Earth bow to alien overlords, or will they live free or die? When aliens trundled the gate to other worlds into the solar system, the world reacted with awe, hope, and fear. But the first aliens to come through, the Glatoon, were peaceful traders, and the world breathed a sigh of relief. Who controls the orbitals controls the world. When the Horvath came through, they announced their ownership by dropping rocks on three cities and gutting them. Since then, they've held Terra as their personal fiefdom. With their control of the orbitals, there's no way to win. 
and Earth's governments have accepted the status quo. Live free or die. To free the world from the grip of the Horvath is going to take an unlikely hero. A hero unwilling to back down to alien or human governments, unwilling to live in slavery, and with enough hubris, if not stature, to think he can win. Fortunately, that man exists. Here is the latest entry in John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Planning for shots by the big telescopes of Earth's major countries is blocked out months and even years in advance. They also cost a lot of money. As the Terminator circled about the globe that night, all such scheduling was put on indefinite hold, and dozens of telescopes pointed to a very small patch of the sky. There was, of course, a huge outcry amongst real researchers who had grants to study oxygen production of mirror variables that naturally were more important than anything else that could possibly be happening, especially with those bunglers at sky what And then the press found out. The Gudram Ring has settled into a stationary position in the Sun-Earth-L2 Lagrange point, Dr. Heinz rumbled, looking at his notes. The position it has taken is not entirely stable, but it seems to have some form of stabilization system. Since it was able to maintain delta V, such as to decelerate into the system, that ability is self-evident. However... The L2 point creates a stable point of gravitational interaction, which is why so many space telescopes are placed there. Power output for stabilization is therefore reduced. As of now, we have no idea as to its method or purpose. Questions? What is it for? The first reporter asked. And I repeat... We have no idea as to its method. We don't know how it works or its purpose. We don't even know why it is here. At this moment, it is as enigmatic as the monolith from 2001. Office of the President, if you would like to leave a message for the President of the United States, press 1. For the Vice President, press 2. For the First Lady, press 3. The phone bank for the general contact number for the White House was not in the White House. It was in a featureless office building in Reston, Virginia. There, a group of 70 receptionists, mostly women, received calls from the general public directed at the president. In the early days of telephone, all calls were listened to, notes taken, and daily they would be collated and tracked. This took a lot of people looking over the notes and figuring out what they meant. But there were general tenors. Do a three-part scale. I love the president so much I want his sperm. The president's an idiot. The president is going to die at 4 p.m. on Friday. So then there were standard forms. Then computers came along. And caller ID and voice recognition and automatic voice synthesis and phone trees and... What the 70 people did was mostly let the computers handle it. But if you worked the phone tree hard enough, you could get a real human being. Office of the President. 
This is not a prank call, a robotic voice said. This system cannot normally block caller ID. Please look at your caller ID. The receptionist looked at the readout and frowned. The caller ID readout was a random string of numbers. The penalty for hacking the White House is, please contact your intelligence agencies and confirm that this call is coming from a satellite and has no ground-based transmission. We are the Gertul, the people of the ring. We come in peace. In five days, on your Thursday, at 12 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, we will call your president through a more secure means. This should give him time to clear his schedule. This will be a conference call with several of your major leaders, all of whom have been contacted or will be contacted. Please ensure your president is informed of this call. Thank you. Goodbye. So... Do we know which secure line they're calling? The president asked. The secure room in the White House was, like most of the rooms in the White House, small, and compared to some secure rooms, not particularly secure. It had been repeatedly upgraded, but when you started off with a concrete basement in a limestone building built in the 1800s, there was only so much you could do. The Joint Chiefs much preferred the tank in the Pentagon. We're ready no matter where it comes in, Mr. President, the Chief of Staff said. The room was more or less at capacity since nobody knew the agenda for the meeting. State, Defense, the Joint Chiefs, NSA, DNI, himself, even Treasury and Commerce had horned in. About the only member of the core cabinet not present was Interior. Surprising even himself, the director of NASA had managed to get a seat. Nobody talks but me, the president said just as the phone rang. He took a deep breath and pressed the button for the speakerphone. President of the United States. Waiting. Waiting. Present are the presidents of the United States and Russia, prime ministers of Britain, France, Germany, Japan, China, India, Brazil. Each have staff present. We will not be responding to questions. We are the Gertul. We come in peace. The ring in your sky is a gate to other worlds. We produce these rings and move them into star systems. Use of the ring requires payment. The payment schedule will be sent to you. There is to be no use of hostile energy systems within 300,000 kilometers of the ring, which are capable of damaging the ring. Anyone who pays may use the ring. In seven days, we will make a general broadcast to the people of your planet on the subject of the ring. This will give you sufficient time to make your own statements and prevent panic. You have a distributed information system. We will establish a document on the information system, which will give the full rules, schedules, and regulations of the ring. We will include a list of answers to questions. In the last 90 million years, we have been asked most conceivable questions. We will now answer the three most common questions asked, and then we will terminate this call.
That was the latest entry in the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the craggy remains of a blasted planet sparkling with easily accessible gold bullion and extremely rare comic books encased in neutronium sheet protectors. Plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to David Weber and Eric Flint, authors of To End in Fire. As mentioned, I will be saying farewell, but please join David F. Sharirod and the new host next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>